This is Sound and Vision from KEXP. I'm Emily Fox. Music has become an investment opportunity. Last month, we heard the news that Bob Dylan sold his songwriting catalog to Universal for more than $300 million. And since then, artists such as Neil Young and Shakira have sold the rights to their songs to an investment company called Hypnosis. To understand what all this means for the music industry is Mark Hogan. He's senior staff writer for Pitchfork, who wrote an article last week titled What to Know About Music's Copyright Gold Rush. And he says selling off rights to music to big companies is nothing new. That's been going on for for years and years, and really, even it being seen as an investment by some people has gone back to the the 2000s. Um, some private equity funds were, um, and and pensions were kind of starting to get into it then. So, what does it mean for an artist when they sell off the rights to a song, or they sell off their catalog to a company like Universal or Hypnosis? Like, what does that mean ultimately for the artist? Yeah, it's basically a quick infusion of, of cash for people who have you know really valuable songwriting catalogs. But do they lose like any power, like to be able to use their songs, or I guess have power over their own music? Do they lose any sense of power through the selling of a catalog or their song rights? It depends on the specifics of the deal. I would say. Um, I mean. Uh, Merck Mercuriatus, the head of hypnosis, assured me that like Neil Young, for example, who I think still has a stake in his songwriting catalog, that he would be, would be able to say say no to you know really bad ideas for uses for the songs. Um, yeah, but I mean, you would be giving up. I mean, if you sold your entire catalog, you'd be giving up uh, control over it for sure. Hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this idea of selling off catalogs or music rights has been happening, you know, for a little while now. But, you know, what are what are other companies out there outside of, you know, big labels such as Universal, Sony and Warner or, you know, an investment company like Hypnosis? What other companies are seeing music as an investment opportunity that are trying to kind of buy into this idea of music as an investment? Sure. Well, I should probably back up at some point and just make clear that there's, you know, a whole bunch of different copyrights on music. So we're talking about the songwriting side. There's also a whole separate set of copyrights for the the what's called the sound recording or the master. And then even just on the uh, on the songwriting side, uh, it gets split up between like the songwriter and a publisher. Um, so a lot of the people that that have been buying um, songwriting copyrights um, are these publishing companies. So the big three are, you know, we mentioned Universal already, but there's also um, Warner Chappelle or Warner Chappell, sorry, and um, Sony ATV. Um, and then there's been you know other. Publishers getting into the mix over recent years, Concord Music Group, Downtown Music Publishing, uh, Cobalt Music Group. A newer one that's been one of the more aggressive buyers is uh, Primary Wave. And then, yeah, you've got like these investment types who've been getting into it um, that aren't you know music businesses so much. Um, these private equity firms, pension funds, and then uh, Hypnosis is actually like a publicly listed fund that anybody can invest in. Um, so I guess all those like, you know, GameStop guys on Reddit are going to, you know, be getting into the song market now. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but hypnosis, like, hypnosis, they basically like, is their fun mostly buying music? And if, if you were to like buy stock in hypnosis, are you basically buying stock in music? Like, is that how, how that company works? That's a good question. So yeah, if you're buying stock in hypnosis, like you're buying stock in hypnosis, it's a publicly company, but like what they do, it's a publicly traded company, but like what they do is they buy up um, catalogs. So uh, you, you'd, be, you'd be buying stock in them sort of like any other kind of 
publicly traded investment vehicle where you know their price could go up or down, like their dividends that they give to you um, could go up or down. Um, but you know their income, you know their revenues are based on what they make from all these songs they buy. And um, their yeah, their founder, this guy Merck, who's, who I, I talked with for a while. I mean, he seems like he's a former artist manager as well as a record executive. So I think he's kind of this bridge between like, he knows how to talk to people who love music like us. He knows how to love, he knows how to talk to artists, and then he also speaks this whole financial language. So uh, yeah, he was kind of an interesting interesting character with a really ambitious idea. So you say in your Pitchfork article, when you talked to Hypnosis founder, you know, he basically said, you know, where the big three publishers use their legacy catalogs to underwrite the costs of gambling on fresh talent. He says he finds that completely illogical. He explains, quote, why would you spend your time trying to create something new at the expense of your catalog when your catalog is already filled with songs that people know and love and have demand for? And so basically he's saying like, we are only looking for legacy artists. They're the only ones that can make us money. But if that's his mentality, I'm curious, like, what a company like Hypnosis means for the music industry as a whole. I mean, when we think of so much of the music industry as independent musicians, you know, up and coming musicians, you know, not a lot of people make it to that top tier that Hypnosis is after. And so... What impact do you think a company like Hypnosis or the mentality that, you know, only this top echelon that's already have proven hits matters? What kind of impact do you think that could mean for the music industry? Yeah, when I've read him say that and then when I heard him say that, it definitely made me think about, well, okay, like, so the major labels, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of major labels here, but like, if they're at least putting that money back into new music, that seems to me like a good thing. And then I definitely got concerned that um, if there's all these people swooping in and spending all this money on what's just these, already these proven hits, then where, you know, what money does that leave for up and coming talent? And I think that is an open question. I mean, I think that the big investors that are trying to make money off of old songs are not really worried about music the way that we are, you know, it's, it's, that's not their focus. They're, they're trying to make money and, you know, let's not be just totally romantic about it. Like people are trying to make money from music, but, um, yeah, I think that, um, there's, there's a windfall going to, uh, to, to wall street, but like, it's not necessarily doing anything to benefit the broader music ecosystem. And I wonder, like, you know, when we think about, like, politics in our country, we're becoming more divided. And I'm thinking about the music industry, too. Like, is the music industry becoming so divided? Because, like, on one hand, we're talking about, you know, companies buying out catalogs or song rights from these top-tier artists. And those top-tier artists, like, already got a bunch of money from album sales back in the day before streaming. And so they already, you know, benefited from that era of the music industry where an album sale actually really meant something in terms of, you know, your finances. And those artists are now getting, like, a second wave of listeners through the streaming era. era. You know, folks, many folks who maybe have already bought their physical copy of their album back in in the late 90s or whatever it may be. You know, so it's like these older artists continue to make more and more money, but, you know, then the independent artists, they're getting less and less opportunity to even make money. You know, you know, we're not touring right now, but, you know, the fact that they entered during the streaming era, I wonder if that's just going to create this even larger divide within the music industry in terms of at what point do you actually start making money for music? Right. Yeah. I mean, that really worries me. I mean, you think about those classic rock acts. I mean, they sold, um, 
LPs in the 60s and then they got to resell everything to everybody in the 90s on CD and then um, you know yeah they're not selling stuff anymore but they can sell off their their catalogs and and make money that way and then um, for up-and-coming artists there's aren't those roots and I think we're realizing that you know now that touring is gone that we're starting to see how streaming is not really uh, covering it either and luckily I mean there are some ways that people can buy you know records but it's just not as big as it used to be um, and this is maybe sort of another, this might be a tangent, but somebody emailed me after the article came out and they talked about how another factor here is that interest rates are really low, which was definitely a little bit more like financy than I wanted to get into in the article. But like, uh, if interest rates go up, then like these Wall Street types are going to be able to get their you know, their money from, uh, just like what they are used to investing in like bonds and stuff. And, uh, they're not necessarily going to have to go for like riskier things like songs. So, uh, this could be a bit of a, of a, of a bubble that might not last forever. Um, the price is being so high, I guess we'll, we'll see, obviously they're, they're betting that these are valuable. So. Interesting. I mean, overall, while writing this article for Pitchfork, you know, again, it's titled What to Know About Music's Copyright Gold Rush. What did you find most fascinating along the way? Did you feel like you learned anything new or did something like really stick with you when you were writing this article? What I was really interested in was, okay, what does this, what does this actually mean for people who love music? And I, and one of the things that I found out was, well, I mean, I was, so I was asking people, you know, are, are we going to suddenly start hearing these songs more in playlists or on TV shows? And uh, I was kind of surprised that at least the the line seems to be that well no this is, you know, you're not going to have these massively be exploited right away exploited is one of the words that they that they use by the way I'm not a big fan of that word but I think it's maybe legally accurate but um, I was talking to um, Larry Mestel who is the head of this company Primary Wave that's been buying up a lot of uh, catalogs they actually just bought up the uh, the assets of Sun Records um, also um, but uh, and he was kind of talking about these deeper ways that they want to um, that they want to use these catalogs that uh, they've got like a you know a Whitney Houston biopic in the works with the, the guy who wrote um, the film Bohemian Rhapsody that uh, they made a holiday for Smokey Robinson um, that yeah they've got like a show in Vegas for Bob Marley with a company that's done all these Olympic games um, opening and closing ceremonies and so that kind of struck me that's just like wow this is bigger than what I was thinking about just like we're going to get your songs in playlists. It's like they're really going to make these, th- these, these songwriting catalogs be part of the, the culture in a, in a big way. I mean, for you, what is the big takeaway? Like, what do you think all this means, this copyright situation means for the, where the industry is now, music industry is now, and where it's going? That's a great question. And yeah, I guess obviously I fret about there not being enough money to fund actual new creative music um if it's all being spent on you know again i love smokey robinson but like maybe we don't need to maybe he's not spending on his catalog is not really my priority right now as, as somebody who writes about and loves music a thing a big kind of question i was left with at the end of the piece that um i feel like i probably didn't get to get to fully uh probe the hypnosis founder on in the interviews because there's only so much time but you know he was talking about uh who he thinks are going to be the most important artists of the the this entire um century and he's talking about justin bieber ed sheeran beyonce uh all these you know huge celebrities which may or may not be true but then i was thinking well okay you're talking about how your company owns these cat these these copyrights for like 70 to 100 years um, i think 101 years they said was the average that they have um this copyright protection over these songs and 
you know, thinking back through all these technological changes, you know, I mean, we already talked about uh, vinyl LPs and CDs, but like, um, you know, and then there was Napster and then and now we're on streaming. But like, if you go back to the 1930s, they weren't even listening to vinyl yet. They're listening to shellac 78s. And like, I actually said to him, well, you know, what do you listen to from the 30s? And he gave me a good answer. But um, one of the answers was Robert Johnson, this like, famously overlooked you know blues trailblazer and can these guys like can some business executive just really foresee like who the next robert johnson is going to be i mean if you're standing here today saying oh i think ed sheeran is going to be culturally significant in 100 years i mean maybe but like i think there's a pretty good chance that there's somebody brilliant out there that we're not supporting enough and um so yeah i guess that was that was my my kind of suspicion that i can't i can't prove but that was kind of my my concern coming out of it all That was my conversation with Mark Hogan, senior staff writer at Pitchfork, who wrote an article last week titled, What to Know About Music's Copyright Gold Rush. And that was Sound and Vision. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend, subscribe to it, rate it, and review it. As you probably know, the podcast marketplace is very saturated. So if you're not a celebrity or you don't have a massive marketing campaign to back your show, it's really hard for people to find out about your podcast. And you can help spread the word by, again, telling other people about it, subscribing, rating, or reviewing the show. Because, by the way, KEXP is a nonprofit, publicly funded radio station based in Seattle. And so we encourage people to give to the station. That's how we're funded. So you can give to this podcast. You can give a one-time $20 donation to help support this show. You can give at kexp.org sound. But most of all, thanks for listening.